Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of the Periodical Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin, and I'm joined by Tavis. Greetings. And we are pretty excited to stir the pot a bit for you guys today. This week, we're going to be discussing the possibility of nationalizing the United States oil industry. What? And why that may or may not be a good idea. This podcast is going to cover the content in this week's periodical that I released this past Wednesday, October the 21st. So, without further ado, Tavis, take it away. Falling oil prices and a surge in green energy policies have breathed new life into an old idea to nationalize the fossil fuel industry. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, the basic argument was the nationalization could expedite the phasing out of fossil fuels in order to reach climate targets while ensuring opportunities for workers in coal, oil, and gas to join other industries. The case for nationalization has gotten stronger in recent months as the share values of large fossil fuel companies have tanked. So the argument is that it is a good time for the federal government to buy, you know, buy low, maybe sell high, basic stuff. In April 2020, Fast Company estimated that a 100% government buyout of the entire sector would cost $700 billion. And a 51% stake in each of the major companies would, of course, be considerably less. The problem is, nationalizing oil and gas would be a radical step, and alone would not be enough to deliver a comprehensive energy transition that can meet climate goals as well as the social objectives of the Green New Deal. But before we go any further, let's discuss this Green New Deal. So, the term, quote, Green New Deal, was first coined by Pulitzer Prize winner Thomas Friedman in January of 2007, when America had just experienced its hottest year on record. And Friedman recognized that there wasn't going to be a palatable, easy solution to climate change, as politicians had hoped. He realized it was going to take money, effort, and upsetting an industry that has always been very generous with campaign contributions. Tavis, any idea who that might be? Oh, considering the business we work in, I'm, I'm going to take a stab and say oil? Bingo! That fossil fuel industry. Anyway, as written, the Green New Deal is now more a list of ideas and ideals than an actual proposal, although new climate change regulations suggested could run up to $1 trillion. What was entered as an official legislative language on Capitol Hill declares the government should take a stronger position on everything from cutting carbon emissions to giving every American a job, including working with family farmers and retrofitting every building in the country. Basically, the main goal of the plan is to bring the U.S. greenhouse gas emissions down to net zero and meet 100% of the power demand in the country through clean, renewable, zero-emission energy sources by 2030. The Green New Deal also calls for the creation of millions of jobs to provide a job guarantee to all Americans, along with access to nature, clean air and water, healthy food, a sustainable environment, and community resiliency. While the deal does not explicitly call for eliminating fossil fuel usage, it would hit the industry pretty hard anyways. The way that the Green New Deal is phrased, it's nothing but positive. You know, we're looking out for the environment, we're looking out for jobs, but the problem is, kind of like you coined there at the end, it seems like it's trying to phase out the entire fossil fuel industry. Oh yeah, while it's it's nice to read that last sentence, you know, job guarantees, access to nature, clean air, you know, what's not to like? But yeah, it doesn't write in what it's going to ruin, and that's going to be a lot of energy industries outside of just oil and gas. We're looking at coal. I would imagine maybe nuclear might not get considered. I don't know. It's, it's really hard to say, but um, kind of like we said, I, I like the Green New Deal, but I don't necessarily like the potential downsides. Anyways, calls to nationalize the fossil fuel industry have been around for decades, but started to gain steam soon after President Donald Trump took office when he began rolling back the emission regulations enacted during Barack Obama's two terms in the White House. 
While history is littered with dozens of examples of governments taking control of oil production, particularly during times of turmoil, none have attempted what environmentalists now propose in the United States, a takeover of the oil industry to euthanize it. Unfortunately, the desire to execute one of the largest economic industries in the United States originates in the aggressive stance of the Green New Deal and is even more enticing with the industry's looming debt problem. Back in 2018, United Nations scientists published a report that projected that the only hope of keeping global warming within 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, which is roughly half a degree hotter than the average temperatures of today, was slashing global emissions in half by 2030. The finding jolted the global debate over climate policy and put in plain terms the unprecedented economic changes required to avert catastrophic warning, including reducing the percentage of global energy coming from oil by 37% by the end of this decade and 87% by 2050. Environmental activists insist that when left to free market principles, these levels of reduction seem unachievable unless production curtailments are forced. And the only way to force such carbon reductions is to control oil and gas production. I want to circle back to something you mentioned before. Like you said, throughout history and even during present day, there are dozens of examples of nationalized oil companies. But like you said, the United States nationalized oil company idea is the only one that attempts to limit it instead of generating revenue for the entire country to use. Yeah, exactly. The, the problem is the purpose behind what many environmentalists and, and people proposing to nationalize the United States oil and gas industry, it's, it's all based on kind of limiting it out, phasing it out in terms of or in favor for green policies, whether that be wind, solar, nuclear, etc. And like you said, a lot of other nationalized oil companies talk Saudi Arabia, Venezuela. The purpose of that was to bring it to new heights under one roof, one umbrella. And that's just not what we're seeing here. Not at all. And the second issue making a nationalized United States oil company more palatable lies in the industry's uncontrollable debt problem. Sold on the promise that improving efficiencies would eventually yield big profits, investors on Wall Street gave shale drillers improbable quantities of cash for nearly a decade after the last recession, loading companies up with the debt made possible by federal policy responses to it. As a result, the U.S. oil and gas sector is currently mired in a chronic debt crisis springing from the debasing of asset values tied to oil prices. That was a damn good sentence. Did you write that? I, I did. <laughs> that was killer. Research suggests that the anticipated outstanding debt and interest for 40 U.S. shale producers maturing within the next seven years is $71 billion. The combined impact of global oversupply of oil and gas before the pandemic and a massive slump in demand as a result of lockdowns has created this economic fallout. A bailout of once thriving industry that needs some help during a downturn is one thing, but the industry has failed to produce positive cash flow, even when oil prices were much higher than they were today. The bottom line is, in the 15 years since the first U.S. shale boom, the industry as a whole has failed to return a profit. With debt maturing in the near future and little to no cash flow to even cover the interest, a massive wave of bankruptcies has already started to creep into the industry. So this is where that argument for uh, the government coming in and kind of taking over really gains some steam, because we're seeing that with all this debt maturing and, and really with oil prices the way they are, bankruptcies are bound to happen. We're already seeing that. We've seen countless ones since the global pandemic, and now we're seeing plenty and plenty of other mergers. I mean, we just saw one today, Parsley and Pioneer. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it, it makes sense if the oil and gas companies themselves, these super majors, can't really front the cost. Who's next? Greenpeace? Probably not. 
the U.S. government's got the pockets and the printers to be able to afford that. <laughs> more, more so the printers than anything else. <laughs> so it's likely that they'll take it, but more on that later. It is well documented that in both world wars, the United States government did not shy away from seizing control of industries deemed crucial to the war efforts. This included the nationalization of the railroad system, telegraph, telephone, and radio networks, as well as manufacturing during World War I, and then coal mines, oil companies, refineries, and even a department store during World War II. Right now, the price of oil is too low to justify the cost of extraction for many wells, as it is simply uneconomic. As a result, companies are losing revenue and are struggling to keep their heads above water. Many have cried out for government support, but the oil and gas industry cannot be bailed out the same way the, quote, big three auto companies were back in 2008. Extending companies' liquidity so that they can restructure and position themselves for economic recovery will not matter if global oil prices remain below production costs for an extended period. This is where nationalization could come in. So, the U.S. fossil fuel industry, there's three outcomes, all right? First one, global energy demand might recover quickly, taking us back to business as usual, marked by higher prices and, of course, higher emission levels. With global demand quickly on the rise, this scenario seems likely, but with expedited green energy policies in the imminent future supported by the Green New Deal, this option is downgraded to plausible. Second, the supply-demand imbalance will persist, thus triggering a wave of bankruptcies and industry consolidation. According to Bloomberg, as many as 70% of the 6,000 shale drillers could go bankrupt if commodity prices remain too low to cover costs or service their debt. A handful of larger corporations might then buy up the assets of the smaller ones. This scenario is also incredibly likely, as that has been what the industry has seen in the past few months. Like Kevin mentioned, we had another merger announced pretty recently, and with dozens of other bankruptcies and several other mergers in the industry, consolidation just might be the future. And number three, option three, the global levels of demand will remain depressed for a longer period, you know, think more than just a couple years, forcing some of the large major companies into asset sell-offs or bankruptcy. This outcome with protracted losses and widespread bankruptcies could force the federal government to consider nationalization or losing the industry as a whole. So the kind of purpose of this last piece was to point out that, okay, nationalization isn't the only option here. The way I see it, and obviously there's more than three options, we've got, you know, one, you know, demand returns immediately, business as usual, which, you know, seems fairly plausible. But like I said, with the expedited Green New Deal policies, all right, maybe that's not quite the direction we're heading. Option two, supply demand kind of continues to be slightly imbalanced, which is really what we're seeing now with bankruptcies and mergers. That's where I really think things are going. But option three, you know, demand is depressed with, you know, second wave of COVID, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, these major companies think, you know, Shell, BP, things like that go bankrupt. And that's when the federal government could kind of do a, a massive takeover. By taking fossil fuel companies under public ownership while they're cheap to buy, the U.S. could ensure that the country's energy demands are met responsibly as it transitions to a net-zero emissions economy without the need to appease those companies' shareholders. The share values of large fossil fuel companies have tanked. So this would be a good time for the federal government to buy. As stated earlier, in April 2020, it was estimated that a 100% government buyout of the entire sector of publicly traded companies would cost $700 billion and 51% stake in each of those major companies would be considerably less. The so-called 51% solution for the climate crisis was coined by the Democracy Collaborative's Carla Scandier and is a policy in which the government takes a majority stake in the publicly owned fossil fuel firms, winds down production along a science-based timeline, and gives workers a dignified off-ramp into their well-paid work, all the while muting the industry's enormous influence over the political system. 
With the majority control over domestic operators, the government would be able to phase out the oil and gas industry in the United States in favor of green, low-carbon energy solutions. But here's the issue. Even if the government were able to acquire a 51% stake in major publicly traded oil companies, there would be additional hurdles for nationalization to truly occur. Legal issues would be the biggest problem faced by the U.S. government out of the gate. The United States is one of few countries that allows individuals and businesses to own mineral rights. The concept of nationalizing oil and gas companies in order to end fossil fuel production also impacts the revenues and value of private mineral owners. Unlike other countries where the government owns the national oil company and all of the minerals, the government intentionally devaluing the property of mineral owners could open the door for potential litigation. Another issue arrives with private oil and gas companies. Since they are not publicly traded, the government cannot gain control through buying a majority equity stake on the stock exchange. These companies would then be able to continue producing oil and gas unless policy changes limiting their operations were also put into place. At that point, the government would be inhibiting the free market and further stifling innovation. The reality is the U.S. economy will continue to consume large volumes of coal, oil, and gas for the foreseeable future. Until low-carbon energy and energy conservation can be scaled up, an accelerated phase-out of fossil fuels domestically would simply mean the United States will import more of their energy from overseas. Therefore, if large parts of domestic production were to permanently come offline, then global prices will increase and the winners will not be the climate or the workers. It will be the current competitors to the United States overseas. If nationalization is going to serve both workers and the climate, Proponents will need to accept that a phase-out of oil and gas is not a 10-year proposition. The transition to a low or zero-carbon energy system will take considerably longer than a decade since the entire economy has been built around fossil fuels and it is impossible to transition all of the infrastructure in such a short amount of time. Luckily, the phase-out has already begun with, quote, Big Oil's Net Zero Club. Companies like BP, Shell, Repsol, and Total are leading the charge signaling the recognition of the energy transition by pledging to cut emissions to, quote, near zero by 2050. According to the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change, net zero means, quote, achieving an overall balance between emissions produced and emissions taken out of the atmosphere, end quote. This means reducing total emissions as close to zero as possible and then using various strategies to remove any residual emissions. In order to be more sound in defining carbon reductions, the Science-Based Targets Initiative, or SBTI, has become known as the gold standard for setting Paris-aligned targets. To ensure the path to net zero is grounded in science, the SBTI will soon release the first global standard for credible, corporate, science-based net zero targets. While setting a science-based target through the initiative's sector-based approach is not yet an available option for oil and gas companies, these handful of super majors described above are taking an important leadership position on greenhouse gas reductions to ensure progress towards worldwide net zero. And I think that's all we're looking for. You know, the keyword is progress. Yeah, it would be great to fully transition 10 years from now. But like you said, there's so much infrastructure. There's so much of the economy for not just the United States, everyone based around oil and gas. It's going to be difficult to have such a quick acceleration to change. I mean, look at just what we've we've talked about this before. Look at what happened down in California. Since they have such aggressive climate change policies, they're really pushing towards, you know, only renewable sources. That's wind, solar. But there's issues with that. You know, California, it's it hasn't been very windy this summer. It's been cloudy. It's they just haven't been able to produce enough electricity to meet their energy demand. And look at that. 
people went without power for days on end, you know, six days for some people. Like that's just unacceptable for the entire world to expect that. Nope. Nope. You're not going to be able to meet your energy demand because, you know, we phased out too quickly oil and gas. Exactly. And places like California had to import energy from their neighbors. Scale that up. The United States has to import energy from probably Saudi Arabia or those other big OPEC people. Mm -hmm. And it's basically we're just instead of having our energy in-house, we're outsourcing it. And many of those other countries aren't aligned with a lot of these you know, Paris agreements. And they will benefit. So the idea of nationalizing the fossil fuel industry in the United States is solely centered around the implementation of climate policies. The problem is, domestic oil and gas companies already have plans in place to reduce their carbon footprint. Therefore, bringing an entire industry under the control of a government entity will eliminate competition and be run as a government institution by favoring taxpayers and not the shareholders. Seems a little backwards to me. Nonetheless, putting the shareholder first is what spurred innovation to push the industry to new heights and is what will force the fossil fuel industry to lead the charge towards an eventual decarbonization. Nationalization alone will not solve the crisis, but it's a crucial tool to consider if the government forces a program of crash decarbonization, particularly in ways that protect workers and communities dependent on extraction. It would be a radical step that goes against progress and would still not be enough to deliver a comprehensive energy transition that can meet climate goals or the social objectives of the Green New Deal. While calls have been made to nationalize oil and gas development in the United States, the inefficiency of government oversight cannot do a better job than private enterprise at developing and managing these natural resources. In addition, a crash decarbonization will leave the United States dependent on foreign energy sources since low-carbon green energy sources will not be able to sustain current domestic energy demand within the next 10 years. I'm not saying it's not possible in a longer period of time, but it's just simply impossible in 10 years. Some version of the Green New Deal may become a reality over time, but it will not be quick or easy and will require the continued development of domestic resources by the oil and gas industry under free market conditions. And man, Kevin, I tell you what, I had fun talking about this this week, and I hope you had fun listening to it. But if you're looking for more, I'm sorry, that's the end of this episode. So go to rarepetro.com, find all of Kevin's other periodicals, plenty of other resources to read and learn through. And if you didn't like this episode, please let us know. You can leave those reviews. You can contact us directly at podcast at rarepetro.com. We would love to hear from you. So until we see you next time, take care, everybody. Have a good one. 